I think we're really experiencing such disruption at the moment. And the frightening thing is, I was at a conference about a year ago where a futurist was talking. He said that now is the slowest point in time that you'll experience change. I thought, oh my God, you know, because we're experiencing rapid change, but it's only going to get more rapid. And I thought that was, that was a good lesson for us. It just is going to keep speeding up. Welcome back. This is the final episode with Ben Lawney, Senior Associate and the Education Lead with PTID, and Richard Leonard, Director at Hayball. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. The debate that's currently unfolding around design and construct methodologies building surveyors' obligations, architects' obligations. And this is something that's hit the multi-res particularly hard, and, and you guys do a lot of multi-residential buildings. Where do you think that's going to unfold in the next 12 months? I feel like there's going to be some lines drawn and perhaps some reshifting of who's responsible for what. Yeah, and I don't think it's a healthy thing in the industry. I think there's a, obviously a role for DNC that's unquestioned. I guess the problem that we all have with it is when it's being rolled out as the panacea to everything. Yeah. And, and that's, that's not constructive to particularly good design mm-hmm. because, you know, if you talk about the constructors, they have their special skill sets in constructing. That's what they should do. The designers have the skill sets in design. Yep. When you put one under the, the responsibility of the other, it changes the whole dynamic and not necessarily for the better. Uh, you know, for those of us who have been in the industry for a long time, we've seen this come and go to, to some extent. At the moment, yep. it's come. Yep. It's big. And, it's, you know, I think disappointingly we're seeing this rolled out also at, uh, at state government level as a, as a panacea to, you know, budgetary or program challenges that they have. Yep. As long as you manage that and control it appropriately, then it's not a bad technique. Mm-hmm. But there are, there are, you know, there's, there's a half a dozen other ways you could do it from different versions of DNC where you've, you know, got managed contracts, etc. It comes back to the old question of the traditional role of the architect. We can say from an architectural point of view, the traditional methods of designing, documenting and delivering a project still ensures the best process yeah. for a client. That is, in terms of making sure the design quality is carried through. You know, it's hard to argue against that, Ben, I think. Absolutely. But DNC is a reality that we face, so it's how you work constructively, collaboratively within that. And uh, the more open the process is, I think, in DNC is is one of the answers to, to make all of that clear. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that often is a cloudy area Mm. In the sense that, uh, you know, it does open up deals within deals being done behind the scenes, which yep. many people may not be aware of. So I want to just talk now about about leadership. Obviously, you're a practice leader, but I think you're also really recognised as a as a leader in the education field. What are the skills that you think you need 
to be an effective leader? I think the best capture of that is that, you know, that common summary that if you're out there leading and no one's behind you, then you're going for a walk by yourself. The ability to, uh, I suppose, lead the way in that sense, but also bring other people behind you is the key to it. You know, from my point of view, that means uh, at, at an architectural level, making sure that people understand the vision that a project may have, the direction we're trying to take it in, what their role is within that and how they can contribute and add add value. You know, there's plenty out there that explains what those uh, qualities of leadership are to be able to do that, you know, empathy, communication, clear vision, things such as that. And again, it's not taught in architecture school, is it? It's not. So do you feel like you've learnt that by osmosis, been mentored or strategically gone about at some point in your career, learnt those skills? Look, I wouldn't pretend I have all of those skills at all, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been working under some pretty good uh, some leadership and particularly, you know, take someone from uh, from my point of view, Len Hayball, who has yep. really led the practice since its inception, obviously, was in his own subtle way a, a great leader in being able to... Um, to communicate, to, to build the empathy within staff, uh, to have the vision and lead the direction towards something, but not necessarily, you know, do it all himself. Being able yeah. to delegate, empower others, be able to set the the landscape, you know, the architectural landscape within the office yeah. to enable that to happen. And that to me was, you know, I think is a, a tremendous example of someone being able to engender the respect, provide the leadership, provide the direction, and allow the people enough leash to be able to carry that out. And that's good leadership. In terms of we've kind of just spoke about disruption, leadership and innovation, I just want you to perhaps reflect on on some of the projects that you've delivered at Hayball. What are the ones that you consider to be those disruptors and those innovators that are changing the industry? The, the touch point for me uh, was in about 2007 mm-hmm. when, uh, from my point of view, this is a, a you know, very much personal thing uh, as it affected my practice, but in 2007 we were engaged onto a particular project in education, which was the Dandenong High School. Mm-hmm. And this was a really interesting uh, set of circumstances where Dandenong, of course, is going through this massive change, still is, you know, from the smokestack era into the 21st century to some extent. So, you know, it had huge population demographic shifts Mm -hmm. at the school, something like 50 or so different languages were being spoken. There were kids coming into the neighbourhood, for instance, from the Horn of Africa, who had little experience of school, but they were ending up at this school. And at that time, we were engaged to do some master planning work. And the school was seeing all of these issues that they had in terms of their particular demographic, thinking through how do they deal with these kids, how do they get kids engaged in school itself, and where they were heading, you know, coming back to, you know, Tom Friedman's uh, skill sets. So the school was really going through, beginning a process of really fundamentally analysing the way they did things, mm-hmm. really at a fundamental level. And from our point of view, from architects coming in and, you know, having been involved in education already for some time, 
education used to be relatively straightforward. You say, how many classrooms do you need? <laughs> yep, yeah. we can do that. We can do that well. But this was really starting to throw the whole concept on its head. Yeah, okay. And at that stage, I think there was a fortuitous uh, coming about of minds where we engaged through the Department of Education, uh, Dr. Julia Atkin, who was a, a leading education thinker. Mm-hmm. She was a teacher herself, but really was approaching education from a very fundamentally different point of view and being able to translate between educators and architects. Yep. So this was, and she says, it's really the first project that she really tackled in this way too, to really start thinking of a project from the ground up, from the curriculum up. Yes. Because 21st century education design is really riding on the coattails of pedagogy, i.e. the way you do things. So this was really the first instance from our point of view where we really flipped the whole thing on its head. And I recall, you know, to the uh, credit of my fellow partners at uh, the office, you know, a master plan that should have taken about three months took about 12 months, only because we couldn't master plan, we couldn't fundamentally get into the design until the school really worked through these fundamental problems. Coming back to your question, that was really the first real instance where we had this deep rethinking of the way you have to do things as an architect in order to develop, you know, in this particular sector. And it acted as a a template, if you like, from our point of view, to um, carry that into other projects. The outcome of this was that it produced a very different model of school, but it did so from the point of view of connecting with the context that it was in. You know, the the deep education thinking that was grounding the design. Uh, The project is still, I think, holding up extremely well for the things it set out to do. And what we saw as as an example is... um, it was based on a school within school system. It was a very big school. It was three schools into into one. So it was, um, you know, a gigantic problem to, to deal with. But it was uh, reconstructing the school in a series of houses, the schools within a school. So, yes. you know, 300 kids in a mm-hmm. single house. So you had seven houses. And what that allowed, and, it, you know, the, this is not rocket science, but it allowed the personal connection with students in a house, a small house of 300 kids rather than 2100s in a huge campus, it allowed those kids to build relationships, you know, peer relationships, relationships with staff, staff with the students, etc. So consequently, you know, the school had all of a sudden, when all of this was rolled out, and it took very many years, but you started to see a different dynamic at the school, you know, more retention of kids actually yep. coming to school early and, you know, willing to stay in their, their houses and uh, all sorts of things like that. Tell me a little bit about, and I think this is one of the wonderful things about being involved in a master plan, flipping a paradigm, because that's a, a completely different way of undertaking an educational briefing to what, what was happening at the time. And then you see that through to fruition. That must feel like one of the great successes of your career. It does. And what other profession can allow you millions of dollars, yeah. invest millions of dollars in your safekeeping to, you know, roll some exciting things like that out. So, it, you know, it's quite a responsibility that we all have. When you can deliver it well, mm. creatively, innovatively, and to great effect, Yes, it, you know, it's a hard profession to beat. So, yes. yeah, from my personal point of view, the Dandenong High School has been a, a wonderful project to be connected with 
with wonderful people from the Department of Education who were willing to, you know, be bold enough to to run with a different model and wonderful people at the school that were, you know, doing the hard yards yeah. of really thinking that through and saying, for kids of tomorrow, we've got to do things differently. Now, for an architect coming on the back of that and being able to support it, develop it mm. and deliver the framework to enable that to happen well yeah. is uh, a tremendous thing. And I think from there, you've obviously worked with Julie a number of times since. And I think that was a real paradigm shift because previous to that, there was a, a pretty standard brief, this many classrooms, maybe a cafeteria, some outdoor space and some science labs. How has that changed the way you run the education department at Habel? It has really made it far more complex is the <laughs> simple answer in the sense that there is there there are no rules to this and as i say going back to the you know what we were doing 15 20 years ago was in many respects so much easier from being able to yep. uh, respond to very prescriptive briefs and saying that's okay because the old you know the, the old paradigm of the classroom was pretty damn good for the industrial era you couldn't do better yep. than a than a classroom it is beautiful piece of design for the industrial era, but we're not in the industrial era anymore. What that has impacted the way we do things is to really go back to to base principles. To me, again, this is not rocket science. It's it's what Peter Corrigan, as my design lecturer Mm at RMIT, drilled into us to say, go back to first principles. You know, what drives the whole concept? What drives the positioning on the site, et cetera, et cetera? You know, it's it's really in this sense in education, it's going back to a very complex set of decisions that schools need to make mm. about how they do things, the pedagogy. Not all schools do it the same. Yep. And that's that's the trick understanding that it is a very deep and uh, to some extent mysterious art that teaching is. And schools have slightly different versions on how that can be rolled out. There are some systems, you know, whether it's Reggio Emilia or Steiner or Montessori, that have different systems built around that. So, yeah, it means that every school project is effectively a very different animal. It's less than two weeks to go until the winners of IDEA 2019 are announced. If you haven't booked your ticket yet, and you don't want to miss out on the celebrations at the party of the year, then book your ticket now at idea-awards.com.au. From there, you, you continue to develop a relationship with the Department of Education, and recently you've, you've gained quite a bit of notoriety for your involvement in the vertical schools. I'd be really interested to kind of get your take on where we think Victoria is in terms of its innovation and its current approach to what is a really ginormous amount of capital spending on education infrastructure. I think that the capital spending on infrastructure across the eastern seaboard is quite massive. You know, the uh, Grattan Institute figures on this that came out, uh, I think, in 2016 that, that, you know, talked about hundreds of schools needing to be added to our system um, in the next 10 years is quite phenomenal. So part of the answer, of course, is 
what you do with the inner urban areas. Mm-hmm. And of course, this whole densification of our cities, particularly Melbourne and yep. Sydney, is quite massive. Part of the response has got to be schools in those areas with you know, the flight to the cities, people are moving in, mm-hmm. sometimes with kids. So the inner urban school is, uh, you know, part of a, a landscape that didn't really, uh, well, sort of evaporated for, for some time. You know, there were always, a lot of schools were still there, but inner urban areas got gentrified or you've got places like the Fishman's Bend Urban Renewal Just, Area that was yep. industry moving out and people moving in have caused a very different dynamic. So, yeah, vertical schools, I prefer to call them inner urban schools, yep. are part of the landscape. I think we're doing it pretty well. I think we're doing education pretty well in the country compared to a lot of examples overseas. I think Australia, New Zealand have some really excellent education systems running Mm -hmm. that are pretty robust, that support their communities very well. You know, we have a high proportion uh, of schools in the public system, but we also have that balanced with a, you know, pretty robust and innovative private system. Yes, So I think generally it's good. It's work in progress in terms of vertical schools because the model is fairly new and it takes, uh, I think, a lot of support from the departments of education to make sure that they're successful. You know, we just can't build the buildings, put people in them. Cross our fingers. And cross our fingers and hope, well, you're going to work in it. Because what's happening at the same time, of course, Ben, is that they're very different models. They're just not horizontal schools stacked vertically. Um, They tend to be much more innovative approaches, which whether they're in the sticks or in the the city, um, still need a good piece of professional development behind them Mm -hmm. to make sure that they can be occupied well, you know, roll out as, uh, you know, innovative schools well. And you've played a key role in being part of the sort of learning environments Australasia and globally. And I think one of the key things I've heard you advocate for in your role there is the importance of post-occupancy evaluation and research as a fundamental part of innovation. How do you feel we're going in that? Uh, I think we've got a a patchy sort of uh, landscape happening in that area, Ben, in the sense that Postdoc quite often isn't formalised. Um, some of the state systems do try to do it, but yep. uh, in the hubbub of actually rolling work out, I think particularly currently, it's easily overlooked or not done in, um, you know, in the best way possible. That is, you know, really understanding. Okay, what's happening with the physical arrangements of a say new new facility rolled out. But how are the, the soft systems, you know, the, the educators working in that and, yep. you know, do they need help? You know, it's, it's just not about the building. That's one of the issues that we see. And in terms of research, the real problem that I think we have in the architecture profession is that currently the architects have to roll the projects out. Mm-hmm. We don't have the benefit yeah. of a huge amount of research. Research takes time. It takes many years and then you, you know, you look backwards and you've, yep. you know, research is based on what is happening now but delivered many years later in terms of its its outcomes. So this is a real problem for us in the sense of having the hard and fast research upon which to build your designs is very limited. Mm. So it's, uh, it's not crossing your fingers and hoping we've got it right, but it's having enough understanding of what needs to be done and how you can roll that out 
and seeing the research hopefully come behind you to refine the models that you're coming up with. What is it that you know now that you wish you'd known when you were starting out? I think one of the big things, and I'll tie it back to education in a sense, what I know now that I didn't realise when I was starting out is that you never stop learning. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you go through a fairly rigorous system in, in architecture too, you know, six years, five, six years, it's a long stint. So yeah. you come out of it with the expectation that you know it all and <laughs> with the um, blind faith of youth, you know, that often is the case. What you quickly learn is that you know nothing, yeah. you know, in a sense of you have to keep learning, you have to, uh, you know, particularly in this uh, age of constant white water, that, uh, you know, the sector is changing fundamentally and the way you do things as an architect is really under constant change. Reflecting back over all those years, the ability to, as they often say, learn unlearn and relearn, yeah. to constantly reinvent, to constantly stay fresh, keep building on what you know, but it doesn't finish. That's, that's lifelong learning. And what do you consider to have been your greatest challenge in your career so far? Professionally, I, I guess um, there's two ways I'd answer that. And one is maintaining a vibrant practice. You know, that's always a challenge. And being part of a, a group of people who contribute, collaborate, lead, yeah. Um, that's a great challenge and a really good challenge. From a professional point of view, if I pick one project, it's um, it's the vertical school that uh, mm -hmm. we the first uh, vertical school in the state system in Victoria, which was South Melbourne Primary School, and the challenges all around that and pulling the threads together, doing it in rapid time, mm -hmm. and being able to deliver that project has been a you know a fantastic challenge. And a fantastic success. I think, you know, it's too early to tell, to be honest. I think that, you know, the school is only at half speed at the moment. It's yes. designed for 525 kids. They're, I think they're just towards the 300 mark at the moment. It probably takes years for these schools to really settle in, to find their rhythm, to get the professional development rolled out. But in terms of the project having an impact in its community, I think we're already seeing that because mm. in this case, it's a project that combines uh, community services. Yes. I mean, it's an integrated, integrated part of what the school does. So, you know, that is really an interesting model. It's not the only school to do that, but it's one of the first, uh, it's the first piece of school, of, of community infrastructure in this particular area as the Fishman's Bend area grows. Yep. And that's not without its challenges, but it's, you know, it has significant benefits in providing a facility that, you know, is uh, perhaps uh, applying our collective taxes to the best advantage yes. and to really building a community focus with a community facility. When you get together as Hable and think about what you're striving to achieve, is there something that you could define as what success looks like? Oh, yeah, look, success, I think, is in the terms of the... would be measured in terms of the positive impact you have. Um, some people can highlight awards as being a measure of that success. That's not something that we strive to particularly as saying we must get awards. Hopefully that comes as part of, you know, a positive way of, of what you're actually delivering. But to me, it's being able to have a, a practice that is delivering high quality, uh, you know, creative solutions 
that are really adding value to the community. You know, we're providing a, uh, you know, a, a service to our community. We live in our community. And being able to contribute that in the built environment, I think, is, and to do so, you know, with positive impact is the success you look for. So now, five in five. I'll give you a word, and if you could just give an off-the-cuff response, opportunity. The next project. <laughs> I think, you know, as architects, you, you always look, where's the next project coming from and what is that opportunity? How can you nail it? That's the monkey grip, I think, coming again. You're always looking for the next project. Disruption? Uh, constant white water. I think we're really experiencing such disruption at the moment. And the frightening thing is, uh, I was at a conference about a year ago where a futurist was talking he said that now is the slowest point in time that you'll experience change. I thought, oh my God, you know, because we're experiencing rapid change, but it's only going to get more rapid. And I thought that was, that was a good lesson for us. It just is going to keep speeding up. Education. Lifelong, critical. I think that this is one of the basic elements of society and it's such a critical thing particularly in these times where we're trying to blend some very different societal viewpoints mm. and different communities into a group that can actually live together in some form of harmony so education is a critical foundation stone to enable that to happen and to continue to impact on that Success? For me, success is around contentment mm -hmm. in terms of personal fulfilment. Knowing that what you do has positive impact, to know that you have a role in shaping positive outcomes, to me is, uh, is you know, it gives me uh, a feeling of success, if you like. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, that's the best way I can capture that. That's a tough one. Downtime? For me, that's doing the opposite to what I do at work, which is, you know, it's a, it's a fairly sedentary uh, occupation. So uh, being able to get out on the push bike or get on a pair of skis or get out on the beach and be active in any way, shape or form for me is downtime. Thanks for listening to this episode. Tune in next week when regular host Isabel Tolland talks to Tom Owens, Principal and Managing Director at Gensler in Sydney. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.